This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to the year 2024 and episode 203 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Brady and I'm joined today just by David as Jordan traverses his way back across North America. He will be chopping this up and... Uh, I am sure we will ask him all about his travels all the way to California when he is back on the podcast. But in the meantime, as the new year begins this week, we're going to do a quick reassess of the football roster. Now that the dust is kind of settled, uh, the season's over. Guys can just about still leave but um, and, and come in, and we'll discuss a little bit of that. But we're also going to talk about sports, sports that happened because it was a perfect week for Georgia State hoops. In Sunbelt play as both the men's and the women's team got off to 1-0 starts in conference. But starting on the football side of things real quick and kind of the, the onus for this or the reason we are going to start with a little bit of football is we got to do a little housekeeping because in between signing day and the bowl game and kind of getting lost up in all the shuffle that was going on, Georgia State actually added another player to their signing class uh, in the early period. And that is Tennessee tech cornerback, Jiren Gilmore, who committed and it has been announced by the school already. Uh, that happened, I think a day or so before the bowl game. Uh, he comes from Tennessee tech. He's from Ocala, Florida originally. And this past season for the golden Eagles, he had 44 tackles, three tackles for loss, two interceptions, a sack and a forced fumble. Also interestingly, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, He's a punt return, kick return guy and had you know, led Tennessee Tech in that category in 2022, had a touchdown in 2021, uh, returning a punt. But uh, we had had some lingering questions about like, how do they feel about the cornerback room, given that they're losing Bryce Brown, but that we feel like Isaiah Guy is kind of penciled in as the starter alongside Gavin Pringle for 2024. I had as an open question when we talked to Ben on the signing day podcast about like, I guess we'll find out how much they are, are liking the guys they've got, depending on the moves they make in the secondary. And they added a guy and, you know, at five, nine, I'm interested to see if maybe he's a slot guy or if he's on the perimeter, but certainly it felt like the staff still wanted to add someone with experience to that room, given what they were losing with Bright Keys. Yeah, you can never have too many depth, uh, too much depth at that position specifically, right? You know, I was thinking about Ronald Cooper for a moment when I saw this, only because I feel like going into next year, you know, if the defense kind of still has that star role, and if they take and evolve um, going into this this offseason and this year it's going to be a thing where they're still going to need a starting caliber player. You know, I think, like you said, Isaiah guy, he definitely impressed us by the end of the year, but at the same time though, given the offenses that Georgia state plays both in the Sun Belt and just, you know, out of conference um, given where certain deficiencies kind of happened later on in the year, having another cornerback who's able to start is great. And I'm going to tell you right now, this isn't a prediction at all. If Gilmore is able to return a punt or a kick for a touchdown, something that I don't think has happened at Georgia state in coach Elliott's tenure, it'll, it'll be worth it. It absolutely will be worth it. Has happened. The penny hearted punt return for a touchdown 
against ULM in 2018. That was 2018. And, I was uh, thinking that was 2016. So I think you were in attendance when Glenn Smith returned one at Coastal Carolina to open that game back in 2017. I was not, but I'm pretty sure you were on that trip. I was doing truck. That's why oh, you missed I, it. I did miss the start of that game. So that would make a lot of sense. Um, but I will still say, you know, if he is able to return one, it'll totally be worth it. Obviously, that's probably not what he's being signed to do. You know, he's probably obviously since he has corner backing experience, he's probably going to end up playing if not starting. Um, so but yeah, it's it's good to have depth. It's good to see um, them look at the needs that they have had and address them i think they've addressed you know all of their needs pretty well except for you know the obvious one that we'll talk about but that's not their fault like it's you know it's patience is what i'll say they do still have time between when this podcast is out and to the end of the week uh basically by next week if you're gonna have a guy in for spring practice they've got to be enrolled in classes by then and so the window is still open uh before we leave the whole gilmore specialist cornerback thing I definitely, you know, you look at it, Robert Lewis was back there some, Tyleek Williams was back there, uh, but had that little snafu in the bowl game. I don't I don't believe they got him because they were worried about Tyleek, but Jakari Carter also was back returning, um, and KZ Adams was another guy who wasn't ever, uh, I don't think, on the field for any returns, but he was a guy who worked pre-game with the return specialists. And so you're maybe, I really do believe he'd at least be a body there. I mean, he's had actual experience, um, but maybe not why he was brought in specifically. The thing that interests me, and I don't remember if I've talked about this on here or not, is like you had Ronald Cooper and Cody Jones at that star position, but it felt like you slotted in guys who based on who you had, it's kind of a new role. There's some newness. And so this being an offseason where Chad Staggs can actually recruit and not just come in and have the roster that is given to him by what was you know cobbled together before he got the job after spring practice, he can look at what he wants from that star position, which was a new thing that he brought in his philosophy. You know, we had heard some during fall camp that DIC Hopkins had been making some moves before he got an injury that took him out for the whole season. Just doing process of elimination, given that. Ty G. Leach and Jeremiah Johnson seem pretty entrenched as the starters. My gut tells me that that's where he was going to land. But, you know, like I said, with Gilmore being 5'9", with this, you know, just traditional slot corner position, I feel like Gilmore fits perfectly with that, with the star thing. And given that wasn't necessarily what Cooper or Jones or Hopkins, for that matter's measurables are, I don't know. It might be that he's just a, out on the perimeter corner and I am – just reading too much into his size and fitting into traditional roles because the slot isn't really the same because they're kind of a linebacker. They're kind of a safety as much as they are just ending up in uh, on the slot receiver in coverage. So I guess we will see, but it's a guy with a lot of experience and it feels like another case of adding someone like Gavin Pringle that you're going to hopefully have come in and be able to contribute in some way and be kind of a veteran joining this defense. And so him getting in under the wire before the signing period signing period ends means I assume we will see him in spring practice. And so we won't have to wait all that long to kind of find the answers to all that we just kind of guessed about. And we will see where he is playing, how he is playing as the weeks go on and we get into that. But you did mention the position that shall not be named until we know who's going to be playing it. Um, 
guy that Ben had mentioned feeling kind of confident because he had visited officially the first weekend of official visits in December. Dexter Williams, Indiana transfer, ends up going to Georgia Southern. He's from Macon, so maybe there's a local connection because I'll be honest that if it's a guy that Georgia State was really interested in at quarterback for like what he provides, him going to Georgia Southern, who have gone full air raid and gone to throwing it 60% of the time, doesn't feel like a, a, a fit. Like it would, It's a little confusing to me, but as it stands, that's one guy off the board that we thought was at least possibly going to be the guy who signed uh, at quarterback heading into the spring. I said it when we talked to Ben, like I think that they need to get someone in for spring. You can work around it with the other positions, but quarterback you want getting in that offense and getting your personnel, getting familiar with the playbook as soon as possible. And so the clock is ticking in the literal sense, but I think specifically for that position, if we are talking next week and they did not add a quarterback in time to enroll for the spring, it's not like concerning, capital C concerning, but it's certainly like, you might still have a guy who starts in the fall that didn't go through spring practice. And so you're not going to know what you have as much as if you get a guy in right now. Yeah. You know, familiarity is honestly the name of the game with that position um, in college, high school, the NFL, and not having a guy be there with the coaches as long as possible certainly puts Georgia state at a disadvantage. Um but it's it's something that they can overcome. And I, I feel like Georgia State has hit on the quarterback position almost every single time since Nick Arbuckle. Like, I think Connor Manning struggled in his first year. You know, that's pretty – it's probably pretty fair. Dan Ellington also struggled in his first year. Um, I'm not saying that they're going to hit on somebody who's going to be great in 2024 – necessarily um but i still feel like given the better like given what we know about how this team has been run from an offensive standpoint and given what we know that they're looking for i mean even quad quad looked really good in 2020 and you know we could do the 2020 thing fine you know we could talk about how he didn't look as good when he came back fine good for a freshman which exactly is all we could go off of because that was it was like all right there's something to build on here and then the building didn't happen, but it doesn't mean we were wrong based on what we saw of a, a winning season in 2020 quarterback throwing it around. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it honestly highlights more to my point, because what happened after that building didn't happen, Darren was already brought in. Darren was taking those practice reps. He came in, played better. The team looked better offensively. He was the starter for the next two years. You know, I'm not saying that somebody's going to come in and have the exact same path that Darren did or, you know, Dan did or whatever. You know, there's so many different ways to achieve this and the transfer portal is what it is. But I just I feel like given where this team has been, the quarterback position is usually an area where they find guys to at least run the offense that they want. So I'm not necessarily worried. It's just January 3rd and the first signing period is ending and you would like a guy in to be there for the spring game. The slight wrinkle I would, you know, caveat that with is this is the first quarterback that OC Trent McKnight is going to get to pick. And so there is a bit of a difference as far as, you know, he was on the staff 
but he wasn't the quarterback's coach, the guy who was picking the guy who is the assuming the main recruiter in you know these official visits on these you know in these conversations you're trying to get your guy to commit and so there is a newness to that and certainly from what we've seen the tendencies of the offense in the last two years given the change of coordinator wouldn't shock me if he wants someone who maybe isn't like 50 50 run pass as far as you know what he brings to the table but we've seen them try and add more to the passing game and add the passing game more to the offense and so seeing somebody who commits who ultimately like you look at the passing numbers more than you look at the rushing numbers even if they can do both that wouldn't shock me at all uh, but we'll also just kind of find out and at the end of the day it isn't going to be a drastically different offense i wouldn't expect and so you're still going to want that running ability and so at the end of the day it might just be a different dual threat maybe with slightly more flowery passing numbers, but basically the same type of mold we've seen with Darren Granger, with Dan Ellington, slight difference there with quad Brown mixed in there, but they've kind of settled into a type at quarterback. And I do still think they're going to add someone in the next few days. I would still expect that for back here next week. And they didn't do it. Uh, I really don't know what the takeaway for me will be because I've been expecting kind of a traditional, you bring in a guy in for spring and you have a more battle. I really hadn't penciled in McKeeley Colasurdo as the certain starter. And I, I still don't really think Bryson Harrison or Braylon Raglan are ready yet. So if next week we're talking about, all right, spring practice is going to be those three guys. It's going to be an adjustment for even me because I just kind of been baking in that there's going to be some fourth name that we're going to, study up on, see in spring practice, kind of get excited about as the presumptive starter. If that isn't the case, then we're looking back at McKeeley finally getting his shot, which would be a, a fun conversation and a great story, but it would certainly be different than what I think has been the expectation for just about everyone after the Darren Granger era. era. I think everyone is basically expected there's going to be someone brought in. And that, that's why I still feel like come next week when we talk about football, we're going to have someone to talk about. I still believe that still. But let's dispense with the non-sports talk. Uh, let's stop talking three months, six months in the future because there's basketball this past weekend. Georgia State is 1-0, whichever basketball you are talking about because the men escaped with a 91-90 win over Arkansas State at home, had an 18-point lead at one point, got all the way down to a tie game, but the Panthers saw it out down the stretch and another similarly bonkers high scoring game. The women's basketball team went to Troy, Alabama and beat the Trojans 90 to 89 in overtime after Maya Williams hit a game winning three pointer as time expired. Jonas Hayes men's team is now an even six and six on the season while Gene Hill and the GSU women's basketball team are seven and four, both of them with winning records one week through conference play Kind of two crazy games. I don't know which way you want to take this one to start, but off to winning ways. We talked about it for the men specifically last week that when you were playing at home with all that went wrong last year, just getting that one and oh is going to feel really good. And I kind of felt like they needed to win a game like that. As bad as it is to blow a lead, I think they needed to blow a lead and see how they handled it down the stretch because they lost some of the games like that last year where it was, Final minutes, What's who's going to make the plays? And they didn't make the plays last year, and they did this time. 
Yeah, and that's basically where I start. Um, because for all of the bad that you want to talk about with the second half, I really can't fault it because of how good the first half was. And what I mean by that is this is a team that we are still trying to figure out what their identity is as far as defense and as far as the three-point shooting. Or we are hoping they are finding their identity and that the identity is not that they cannot play much defense. Correct. That's fair. Um, There were a lot of times in the first half where – you know, the game wasn't that it was very close. Um, Georgia State didn't even get to that big lead that they had until later on in the period. Um, and I thought that they were playing really good offense. They would get at the basket. They would shoot well um, if they needed to. Um, and defensively, they looked a little bit slow to me. And what I mean by slow is you could see their eyes tracking the ball. You could see, you know, the guy recognizing, okay, this is the next pass that's going to come. The anticipation was there. Their physical bodies just weren't. And it led to a lot of open threes that uh, Arkansas State was missing in the first half. The thing that I'm not necessarily worried about is – Arkansas State shot worse in the second half than the first half. And I felt like they, I don't want to say they got lucky. Like this was a team that shoots a lot of threes. You know, they have a pretty decent shooting percentage, I believe coming into the game. It was like 32 and a half, which was like seventh in the Sun Belt. Not like the best, best number in the country, but you know, this isn't a team that was struggling for attempts at least. And listen, Avery Feltz was just on one. He saw his first couple go in and just that's all it takes for shooters sometimes is seeing the first one go in and then you're good to go. And he was good to go. Exactly. And there were times where Georgia state actually was contesting shots. Like as far as I'm concerned, this game should not have even been tied at the very end there. Like that three, I, was it Phelps who hit that three at the very yeah, end? It was Phelps yeah. who hit that three, you're twisting and turning yeah. and guy in his face. And like we, you, we saw RJ hit at least a couple of, of threes like that in his time. Outside of literally fouling a jump shooter, it is impossible to play better defense than the defense that was played on that shot. Like the dude had to double clutch a three and he he still banked it. It wasn't even like, you know, it just went in on a swish. So it was a good shot or whatever. You know, he still had to just throw it. He still threw it up there. And yeah, you know what? Don't blow an 18 point lead. Okay, fine. I just I think the shot creation was a lot better in this game than it's been. You know, the droughts weren't really there. And I mean, at the end of the day, they scored 91 freaking points like the offense was certainly not lacking. And if you're able to smooth out the defense, I think we have our answer on, you know, the caliber of team, at least that this Panthers team can be, because, I mean, you got contributions I'm going to say everybody, but like you literally got contributions from everybody. I think what he played like 11 people and two of them didn't score something like that, you know, and you look at, you look at like Odom's line. Okay. 24 points. He was obviously the catalyst, but he only had three assists. But if you watch that game, a lot of the way that they were moving the ball just went 
through him and completely revolved around him. So even if he didn't specifically get an assist, you know, it was his hands on the ball and then his ability to create points, you know, in, I, I think the way that teams are starting to defend Georgia state is they really want to clog the paint because they know these guys are either shooting jump shots or they're going right at the basket. But his ability to make those mid-range jumpers that look like bad shots, but they always just find a way to roll in. I mean, it's been a year and a half of it at this point, and it's still, it surprises me. It's incredible. Yeah, we've seen a lot of backseat Dewan not pushing the pedal as a scorer this year. And I think it's been a positive because when he is playing full on distributor, the ball moves around a lot. Guys get some good jump shots. And I think it has been a, a good part of some of the wins they've had already. But from the first possession, when I was watching this game back, it was clear that he was just going to be a full on aggressive today. He got the first basket playing like that the entire time he was on. And I think it was a case of, him orchestrating the offense in a different way than he had been. Cause like you said, he only had the three assists. He's had more than that in several games already this year, but he was getting to his spots and making his shots and he was energizing the offense in that way. And I think that that, you know, we'd said like, we think that these other guys are going to make the one better. And I, I don't think that last January he was having games like that because at that point, teams were having to just totally sitting in the lane because you didn't have anyone you trusted could make a three pointer. So seeing him have this game, I think on its own is a, a good thing to say. Yeah. He still got that in his bag because I think when he is getting downhill and aggressive and even when he's getting aggressive, he's still going to do his little pull around, turn up and pull up shot that it's his shot. Like that is the Dewan Odom shot. And he hit a few of them in this game. It's the same thing. It also was encouraging to see you know, he played 31 minutes. I don't know if you noticed this or not. I saw it when I looked at the stats after the fact. He sat out from 11-19 to 4-33 in the first half. And while he was gone, Julian Mackey was on the floor. Brendan Tucker was on the floor. And their numbers, when you look at them on their own, don't really jump out as crazy. They both were two of three shooting four points on the game. But they were out there. I think largely their minutes were over that stretch where Dewan was out. Some of they overlapped each of them a little bit with Dewan, but mostly they were just in the time where Dewan was off the floor for a long time. For a starter to sit out that long, and given it was basically the only time he sat out all game, but it's a lot of time to take out the guy who basically leads your offense. They took over what he had been doing, and you know when you count up the numbers at the end of the day, they combined for eighteen minutes, eight points, four of six shooting. Like they kind of filled in with what he was going to be doing anywhere during that time. And something we had been wondering about is how is the offense going to stay what it's doing when their engine is not involved And Yeah. Four of 20 from three as a team, not great. You can't have Tenari lane and Lucas Taylor taking 16 threes between the two of them and only making three, but you saw other guys step up into other roles and you saw guys keep just kind of the general flow of the offense going with the exception being when Arkansas State went to a zone that totally flummoxed Georgia State. And so the, the takeaway aside from you got to win positives on offense, stuff to work on defensively is, especially with these quick turnarounds for conference play, all these coaches are going to look for something that worked against a team. And so 
I'll just say this will not be the last time Georgia State's going to see a zone defense, and they're going to have to be ready for that look again because it's something that really tested them in the second half, and it's part of why, along with Arkansas State finding a little bit of rhythm themselves offensively, they got back into the game and made it close down the stretch. That's a really good point that you just made about uh, Odom. I checked Run Tracker, and it's a little hard to get to line it up exactly, but in that period of time where he was off the floor, Arkansas State outscored Georgia State 18 to 14, you know, not anything crazy. As soon as he came back on the court between then and the rest of the half, Georgia State went on a 14 to 2 run. So it's, and I believe Georgia State was winning before that period that I had just looked. Um, they might have been actually, yeah, they were up by three. So uh, interesting on off specifically for that type of player and specifically for a team who I think like there are good guards and good ball handlers on Georgia State that are not Dwan Odom. I don't know that they know that fact is true because it seems sometimes that a lot of the actual shot creation stays the same, but the level of movement doesn't stay the same. And it's, it's a very interesting thing to see happen. Yeah. I think you're, they, you know, minus four in that stretch, you don't want to be trailing during any extended stretch like that, but, that kept them in the game. There were times last year where the offense just completely was nothing when he was off the court, which led to Jonas kind of having to keep him on the court for basically all of 40 minutes. And that negatively affected his ability to play top quality basketball the entire time he was on the court. He was doing a lot last year and it was definitely wearing on him as the season went down. Health was a factor as we kind of learned throughout the season as he missed some games. I think that you've seen now that, I don't know if he was taking it easier during the non-conference and like the offense was needing to kind of find itself, you know, it wasn't like he was taking it off, but that non-conference was the time to kind of experiment with like, all right, how does it work if Dewan is really looking to pass the ball all over rather than taking it over? And now that it's conference play, there's kind of going back to what the offense is going to look like, but certainly he played his part, 24 points to lead the team, eight of 12 from the floor and Eight of eight from the line. And this is one on, something I wanted to circle back to about needing a win like this. There's a few that stood out to me from last year that kind of fit the same category of game as far as not the score, but like the, the closeness of the game and the stretch down in the final minutes and who was making the plays, who's making the shots. Ironically enough, when they played at Arkansas State last year in Jonesboro. I remember that being a game played out largely the same way as far as it was tied or someone had a, a, a narrow lead late on and Arkansas State's guards were the ones getting to the line, making their shots, and they won the game. I also remember it kind of being the case against Southern Miss at home. Uh, it wasn't just the guards because they had Philippe Hasse, who's uh, just a, a unicorn to deal with in college basketball. Southern Miss had the experience. They made those shots. And the one that really was a parallel to this game was the home loss to Old Dominion, where it came down to Dewan Odom missing both free throws in a clutch sequence in the final seconds of that game. Ultimately, Old Dominion hit a winner, won the game in Atlanta. And so this one felt like a real redemption. Dewan hit those final two in the final 10 seconds after Feltz's three had tied it. 
I'm not really sure what the Arkansas State player was doing, grabbing and fouling Dewan there. Uh, it sent him to the line. Unless the thought was like, we want to get the last shot, even if they have the lead. I could go with that, if it, even if it's a little bit out of the box. But if it, I, I don't know what happened there. But Dewan made the free throws this time. And the team as a whole did. And that's what they've been doing all year. They're 23 of 28 in this game. Arkansas State was 23 of 32. And let's not forget, Caleb Fields had two free throws at the very end to also have a chance to make two shots, send it to overtime, keep the game alive. He misses the back end. Uh, They are unable to get anything on the scramble on the ensuing uh, inbounds with 0.2 seconds left and Georgia State escapes with a win. But it's something that I've talked about a couple of times where it's, we don't know how we know a couple of things this team does well and how do they make winning basketball out of that? Because it's not, it's hard to look at a team who's top 10 in the country in free throw shooting and say, okay, that's going to give them the edge in every game because it is not always easy to orchestrate getting to the line and making those shots. And the way Georgia state's played sometimes this year and last year with a lot of jump shots at certain times, it's, it's felt like they've played against that type, but you had Dewan going to line eight times. You had Jermaine Mann, who I've really liked the game he's been able to take on offensively, not taking as many threes this year. He gets to the line 10 times, makes seven of them. Jaden Turner goes to the line, makes five of six. You know, they got to the line and they made something that is the strength of their team matter in this win. And in another way of that, they had 14 assists, they had four turnovers. You know, this team makes a ton of free throws and doesn't turn the ball over on offense. And I think they've got to find some more consistency in the other aspects of their offensive game to really help them win more games as they get into this conference season. But they made those two things count, count, count in this 91-90 game where every point mattered. Man is certainly an interesting player because I feel like he plays bigger than he is like he's he's listed as a guard but I I'm honestly I'm surprised I mean I feel like I knew that he was a guard but when I'm watching him play and the way that he kind of dominates the wings sometimes like he really plays like he's a forward but he's not a guy who's out here shooting a ton of threes so it's a very interesting like he's been such a smart player the last few weeks yeah, I mean, he was taking a lot more of them last year because that was kind of the role he was playing. This year, he's been playing more inside. I mean, they're going to be undersized, and he, you do lose a little bit of the effectiveness with Jaden and Leslie's kind of antagonizing on defense because still out them, though. Oh, yeah. But in the first couple of games we saw, especially against Belmont, we saw Jaden and Leslie really be active going up to mid midcourt. And I feel like they've gotten away from that. And that is affecting the team's ability to get turnovers where their numbers nationally are not very good. They're in like the bottom 50 as far as just forcing turnovers in college basketball. I think that's been negated a little bit because they are fours and fives. So maybe they're more like threes and fours and other offenses. And with, with the team that has the size to offer that. And Jermaine kind of is the same way where I think he could work. Last year, it gets lost under the shuffle because everyone was particularly yeah, collectively, the team was not a great three-point shooting team. Jermaine made 37% of his threes in conference play last year for this team. Like It could have been a situation where they just tried to keep making it work, but I think he has been helpful because he is 
smaller than some of these bigs he's matched up against. He's getting a step on them. He's at least getting fouled, going to the line, and making him in a decent clip. And the other thing is, I mentioned the zone. It's going to be an issue. They got stagnant. They got a little bit. What happened when we saw teams face the Ron Hunter defense for 40 minutes every you know, There's some weeks where you saw teams the first time they got any kind of daylight on the perimeter, they'd throw up a three. Not the way you beat it because that's what the defense wants you to do. But we saw some of that in this game. Dewan in the middle, especially with the shots we know he loves to take, is a good zone breaker. But Jermaine was also passing really nicely in a couple of those spots when he was out there and they were going to the zone, he knew where the ball needed to go. And I think that is what you can trust with him is that he's a smart basketball player. He knows his strengths and we've seen him pretty much change entirely his game. He still got threes. He made one of two in this game and important three, uh, but he is not taking as many as last year because he's playing a different role. And I think that I've liked what I've seen from him kind of filling that bench spot. And especially now the last couple of games, he's gotten more healthy after missing a few uh, after the Kennesaw game. Are we going to have the conversation about Tanari? I mean, it it is just, he, I don't know if anyone told him that Corey Allen wore 11 and that like, he was a very similar player or like if 11 was number four, I'm pretty sure it was, but like the, the comparison just isn't going anywhere. And cause I'm sure that Corey Allen had games where he was two of eight from three. Cause that's just, you know, the, he would take those shots and he was right to, because a lot of the time he'd have those games where he went crazy. You know, he went crazy in Pensacola and led the team to an NCAA tournament partially Largely because of Lane is going to absolutely go like four of six tomorrow against Southern Miss. And it's going to be so funny. It's just, you know, it's about the spots. You know, I said, you know, you can't have two guys go three of 16. I don't think all of those are bad shots. You're not going to make every shot you take. The inverse of the, the Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott quote on the office. I just think there were a couple of times, especially against that zone where you got a little bit trigger happy and it's been a symptom with specifically those two guys. And it's something that Jonas has been very clear. He doesn't want to like take out of the guy's mentalities. Like he wants them to be confident. He wants them to be taking their shots. I just think they got to self-select a little bit better. And if they're not having the shots go in, they got to do something to help out the team that isn't trying to get out of a shooting slump. I don't think that they are unaware of it. You know, Lucas Taylor, I believe it was after the game, talked about it. And it talked about, we've got to help out in other ways. If the shots aren't falling, we can't get on tilt. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not saying exactly what he said. But I think that it is known that they can't have, you know, one of eight, two of eight shooting nights all the time. they got to regulate it a little bit. But in defense of the team in general, they're taking – I think just over a third of their attempts from the floor are threes, which is 271 out of 364 in division one. You know, they aren't taking a ton of threes. It's well below the division one average of 37.4% of shots being three point attempts. Like they are not living and dying by the three. And in this game, you know, they shot almost 60% on twos and they got the line, made their free throws. You mentioned they out rebounded them. There's a lot of aspects in which they were the better team. And that's why they ultimately won the game. I just, 
it's going to come up again with the zone thing because the the easiest decision you can make when you get faced with the zone is just bombing a three when you get any kind of space. And I think that will only cause them further issues if there's another team mounting a comeback like Arkansas State uh, because that is how you led the team back in a game when you've got a big lead is you have short possessions that result in no points and they're able to run in transition a bit. But flipping to the other game, I don't know how much of this you caught. I was aware it was a tight game going to overtime, and then I saw the clip and I was like, there's no better ending of a sports game, I think. Like, football has great moments, but the shot that goes in milliseconds after the horn sounds, like in basketball for a buzzer-beating win, they're just not a lot better than that. And... Troy has been a really, really good women's basketball team ever since Georgia State's been in the league. Might be a bit of a down year for them. I believe they're giving up north of 82 points a game, which is a crazy average to be giving up. But that's a Troy problem, and Georgia State got a tough road win. Got a winning record, feeling good. And I I think that the important thing is they've got multiple really good scoring options that Tolliver... And Crystal Henderson, I don't know the last time they've had a duo like that, but it's certainly working right now. And the scary thing for the Sun Belt, happy thing for Georgia State fans is Henderson is a true freshman. And uh, basketball just runs in that that family because she's Scoot Henderson's sister. And I believe they are collectively five or six siblings have played professional basketball, including one that's now in the NBA. I Next in the line of just that, that is what this family does. It's crazy too, because I mean, if you're just looking at from a sheer points per game perspective, the women's team has three players in double figures right now. And I mean, yeah, two players in double figures. It's been a while. I couldn't tell you the last time three players have been this good um, for the women. And let me roll you back even further. Deja Merritt, Average double figures last year and is not on this team. I think she's the fifth leading scorer on this team. And so that's someone that last year she had, I think, 13 something points a game. And she's been her her numbers are down, but that is still someone you look at is look at the, the, what she did last year. She can definitely add to this team. They're just scoring a lot more. I talked earlier in the year. I was seeing it as the, the wrong way. I was seeing it as the defense is really good. The offense is in a place it hasn't been in. I can't remember the last time they were averaging north of 70 points like this. It's, offense has been the thing that's been holding back this women's basketball team. And this year certainly doesn't seem to be the problem. And this feels like something that, forget what just happened this year, seems replicable as they have a couple more years with this core of t- players. Yeah, you know, as far as I know, I don't think the women's transfer portal is nearly as ruthless as the men's transfer portal is. Um, So you you do have to caveat that when you're talking about some, you know, underclassmen. But I do think that this is exactly what people envisioned for Georgia State's women's basketball team, you know, a few years ago. It's a team that you think that can like the the Sun Belt is a t- is a conference that has really good women's basketball. There's usually one or two teams who are pushing thirty wins. You know, it, like I think that with it's a little bit more. I don't want to say it's not competitive, but I think with the men, there's at least a little bit more um, parity. Excuse me. 
you know, that it's, it's not often you see years like that Chris Beard, little rock team, but with the women, I mean, it's, it's Troy, you know, when UTA was here, it was them who was Louisiana. out. Yeah. And now Louisiana, James Madison, James Madison, you know, it, it might be that there's less parity, but I mean, at the same time that those teams at the top of the Sun Belt, I mean, they are blowing people out year in and year out. So one, like you said at the beginning, getting a win like this at Troy, forget what they've done this year. That's just a good win. And number two, I mean, that is how what it takes to win in this conference as a women's team. You really just have to have your offense be dialed in in a way that we have not seen Georgia State be in a while. So finding, you know, finding three good players and players who can consistently score this early in the campaign, that's huge. Yeah, scoring fourth in the Sun Belt in threes, hair under 33%. And the defense is still there in, you know, they're 10th in the Sun Belt in points per game, 64.5. But they're over six points better than the team in 11. So it's kind of more like they're in the pack defensively and the scoring is upper tier for the conference. And that has been the difference. And now, you know, we talked about the importance for the men's team last week, getting that win when they're at home and just overall the importance of getting conference wins. Women get ULM and Texas State at home this week. And so it's the reverse of that where rather than, okay, you got to get off to a winning start on the road or at home, you got a chance to win one or both of these games and you'll be two and one or three and oh during or after two weeks of Sunbelt play and really will start making noise as far as people take notice that, oh, this Georgia State's women's team has taken a real step this year. The kind of step I think a lot of people have been hoping that they could take under Gene Hill. And now before we end this week, we're going to circle back, talk about the men again, and because they take a trip. And this is kind of the start of a, I think six of the next eight are on the road. So this is after getting it all through non-conference, a lot of road tests uh, does not stop. Now the Sunbelt play has started and this week, Thursday, they head to Hattiesburg. They will face Southern Miss and then turn around and stop in Mobile on the way home, and they'll play South Alabama on Saturday. Southern Miss, a uh, dubious distinction, became the first team to lose to Georgia Southern this year, gave Eagles head coach Charlie Henry his first win as a collegiate head coach, and they got pretty well beaten. They lost by 21 in Statesboro. Yeah, this is a thumping. Like, it, not just Georgia Southern getting their first win. Like, the Golden Eagles got their butts kicked. So I think the first thing to say is I feel like you can expect this is going to be a response game. I, I don't know that this is the same Southern Miss team as it was last year. I'm starting to feel like that was kind of the perfect coming together of some pieces. And specifically last year, they were a top 100 Ken Palm defensive efficiency team. This year as they entered this game, they're sitting – at 273, which is 12 spots better than Georgia State. So if you've thought Georgia State's defense collectively has not been great, Southern Miss has been in about the same ballpark as the Panthers so far this season. And that's what cost them against Georgia Southern. And specifically what cost them against Georgia Southern and in a few other games this year is they are bottom five in the country in three-point percent defense. They are giving up nearly 40% on made threes. And Georgia Southern 
was 15 of 29. That is 51.7% from downtown in their win last week. So for all we've talked about this Georgia State team, we think it's a better shooting team. We don't know how much better. This is just certifiably got to be a get right day from the perimeter because the Southern Miss team has struggled all season with it. It's, I wouldn't say it's been a struggle all season. You've had some bad games like this Arkansas State game where you went four of 20 from three, but it certainly hasn't been like night and day better than last year. This is your game to juice the stats a little bit, get back into more of the shooting range you want to be at. Looking at guys like Julian Mackey, obviously Lucas Taylor and Tenari Lane, to get a rhythm, get some good looks up early and get – you know, do what Avery Feltz did. I, I think it is within players on this Georgia State team to do the exact same thing where they're six of nine in a game because they hit one early and it feels good and they keep it going. Lucas Taylor did it against Western Michigan. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I, I, I will credit Georgia Southern. Georgia Southern currently is fourth in the Sun Belt in three point shooting uh, by percentage. Um, believe they make the most in the conference just a quick look yes they also make the most they play the alabama system which is that he just wants threes and layups and he mixed result not mixed results bad results so far for georgia southern under charlie henry but that is they do the threes that's that's it (laughs) you are getting that boom bust and obviously southern miss was on the wrong side of that last week I don't know that that is going to be specifically the recipe that Georgia State is going to want to emulate. Um, but that is, you're absolutely right. Like, that is the first thing that really jumps out at you when you're looking at Southern Miss. Um, I mean, they're giving up 71.4 a game. Um, it's lower in the Sun Belt um, than I think their kind of their recent play has looked. But the three point shooting has definitely gotten them in a way that I don't think a lot of other teams have been gotten. Um, And it's certainly a problem. They are certainly a team who are struggling right now as it relates to defending the three. Um, And I think that's going to be an area for Georgia state to, you know, really kind of hit them at the other area too, is they're not a good free throw shooting team. They are, not the worst in the conference, but they are currently shooting less free throws than the, uh, their opponents are. And the reason I say that is, sorry, their free throw percentage is less than their opponent free throw percentage. And the reason I bring that up is because Georgia State has been the best three-point shooting, excuse me, the best free throw shooting team in the conference. Um, and it's like, the as we kind of continue on, the percentages are starting to get pretty pretty noticeable between first place and second place, which is South Alabama. Um, If Georgia state is going to the line, if they are kind of able to really hammer Southern miss inside and they're getting to the free throw line, independent of how they're shooting threes, that right there could be enough of the ball game to where it's like, okay, Georgia state may not comfortably win, but Georgia state is at least going to be in the game because I just don't see Southern miss, you know, shooting Georgia state out of the gym because that's not something that they've really been doing. They're about average ish, you know, at shooting the three ball in terms of percentage. Um, They take a little bit less than Georgia state does anyways, and are about 1.8% better. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I think really the thing that I'm going to be looking for is the fouls. You know, ha, is Georgia State able to take advantage of a Southern Miss team that might be fouling them a lot? Um, and if is, are Southern Miss going to miss their opportunities if Georgia State is fouling them a lot? You know, Georgia State has certainly gotten into some foul trouble the last few weeks. I believe two people fouled out in the game before Arkansas State and then Jermaine, Jermaine Mann fouled out. Um and, you know, fouls are something that you can control. Sometimes you can't control it because sometimes you play the same defense and one day it's a foul and one day it's not. Yeah, I get that. Um, but for a team like Georgia State who doesn't turn the ball over that much but also doesn't force a ton of turnovers, that area is going to be where the difference is made for this Panthers team at the free throw line. Yeah, and it's an important point to make because I say get right game shooting from three I don't mean I think they should take 43s. Like, I think they should still take the, the normal amount that is not a high percentage of their shots because I don't think that they should lean into threes. I don't think it is the strength of the offense. But if they take 20 like they did against Arkansas State, I just think you hope that you get some better looks, you get a rhythm, and you make more of those, and you're more around the 9 of 20, 10 of 20, even if you're just being conservative and just hoping for about like what Georgia Southern got. You know, if the numbers get more wonky than that, obviously that is even more in Georgia State's favor, but it's more about quality over quantity as far as the threes go. Because, I mean, you're right. Like the way this team operates, the best way they are is when they're getting downhill because they're either getting in the line, they're getting a layup, or they're dishing out the perimeter, and that's where they get their good looks from three. And so this will be a game where it might be tempting to overdo the threes, but I think it's just about the looks might be there. And if you're able to get better looks early and kind of get that part of your game going could go a long way. Saturday. It's an interesting matchup because I mean, Richie Riley is the embodiment of the we're so back. It's all it's over chart. Um, Hard to make anything consistently of the South Alabama teams, except that at a certain point of conference season, they're going to be the best team in the conference and at a certain point, they're going to be the worst. And it's helpful for him when it is the back end of the year where they're good. And last year, they made a run in the Sunbelt tourney because they were a lower seed, but they really, really meshed well with their team at the end of the season. You know, this year, it seems like they're kind of in an uptick right now. You know, they beat Mercer at Mercer. Team Georgia State lost two at Mercer by 21 early in December. Uh, they came back and theirs was maybe the craziest game in the men's side and the opening weekend because they were down 49, 27 at old dominion with 14 minutes left. Ken Palm gave them a minimum win per probability at that point of 2%. They had a 2% chance to win at that point in the game. And they did it. They came back and won 61, 59, no idea how this happened. I, I wish I could say I'd laid eyes on this game because I want to see this unfold because it's the type of basketball game that just seems like absolutely worth time finding the replay on ESPN plus just to see how the heck this happened. But it's a team. When you look at their numbers, it's not like they're either great offensively or great defensively. They're just decent at both. And so it proves a test for Georgia state because they've kind of been a team that has been leaning on something that works for them or 
you know, playing the style of the other team and, and making enough plays happen. And I don't know what the, that's going to be when they play South of the Bama on Saturday. Um, it's another team that doesn't turn the ball over very much. Uh, they're in the top 100. They're at 78 in turnover percentage per Ken Palm. Uh, they also don't force a ton, but they are 42nd in the country with 29.4% three-point defense. Very, very good. The polar opposite of the Southern Miss thing. So <laughs> conference play is always fun because you could play two entirely different styles in the same week. And guess what? You got to get prepped for both of them because you want to win two games. And so I almost wonder if they're going to try and thread the needle and get some kind of style that'll work in both these games, or if they're going to have to get two different game plans up offensively, uh, because the way that Southern Miss is good defensively, South Alabama is maybe more gettable, but the the reverse is definitely true. I don't know that there's a one size fits all offensive game plan that I see other than scoring 91 points in both games probably gets the job done. You'd hope that it gets the job done, right? Um, Yeah, I agree with everything you said about South Alabama. I'm going to call this a middle-class game. The reason I call this a middle-class game is I don't think South Alabama is the best team in the Sun Belt because it's not the conference tournament and Richie Riley's hair isn't on fire. Um, I also don't think they're the worst team in the Sun Belt, and I feel the exact same way about Georgia State on both ends. I think this is where you really have to scrap and just find. And and this is why end of game like last week is very important, because when you have two teams who are kind of similar and they're around the same type of game, the type of players, you know, similar coaches, if you want to say that. The thing that's going to really set you apart is how you can manage the end of game when things get close. You know, when the shots are starting to really matter in terms of their value and you really need a bucket, that is when, you know, a big part of winning and losing just comes into your decision making. It's very clear that South Alabama finds a way to erase a 20 point deficit, you know, to beat Old Dominion. It's very clear that they themselves know how to play good end of game basketball. So the thing with Georgia State is going to be, is Arkansas State a fluke or are they going to revert to how they were last year and not be able to put a game plan together under five where they're going to be just checking up threes, you know, confused by zones and just not being able to go at the basket as hard as they need to when that's usually what's been working for them. Yeah, and I guess the lingering thing for both of these games is what I talked about with the Arkansas State game. Is it just let DeWan cook season? Like, are we back on like he is alpha possession one, possession all the way to the end, kind of running things when he's on the court? Or is it going to be kind of a mix again and we kind of see other guys get those spots, see Ricky Bradley mix in some more? You know, against Arkansas State, we saw Ricky Bradley, we saw still Malik Ferguson, which I still am encouraged by and excited by because you love seeing a freshman even work his way for two minutes in the conference play games. Um, but they didn't play like really any time, you know, Julian Mackey played eight minutes and I talked about what him and Brendan Tucker did collectively, but it still wasn't like they kind of got their time running the offense. DeWan was still out there a lot of the time. So it'll be interesting because I think that the depth and having all those guys you can lean on at different points is a strength of this team. 
But I think you also saw what happens when you give Dewan the keys for a large stretch of the game. And it will be tempting for Jonas to keep doing that because when he is on and when he's running the offense, the offense is really, really good. And this is kind of a point on just the last game rather than these two that we've just previewed a little bit. But winning 91-90, I think it tells you that like maybe not every game and certainly you're going to face some good defenses. They're going to challenge you that way. You're going to face some teams that can score with you. But one of the things we had talked about with this team is kind of like, who are they and how much better are they than last year? I do think that we learned that yes, they can just outscore their way to win. Sometimes it might not be the formula to winning the Sun Belt because you're going to have to get some stops against some of these teams. You know, James Madison is more than happy to play in the nineties as a team. They love scoring the basketball, but against teams like Arkansas state and maybe against Southern Miss in South Alabama, just being good offensively might be enough in these games. Obviously you go on the road that has its own challenges and teams don't play as well on the road, just a fact of life. But that is something I think you can take from the last game as a fan. It's like, yeah, they might just be able to outscore some teams and that's going to get them some wins that they didn't have last year. I'm glad that they, you know, and there's something I should have said um, when we were talking about Arkansas state, but I'm going to say it now because this is really kind of, where some of the monkeys need to start coming off the back for coach Hayes and this team, you know, last year they had three conference wins, you know, it's great that they got their first one this year. And there is a scenario where they can sweep this weekend and tie their record from last year. And that's great. And that'd be two more road wins than last year. I believe. And that is, that is exactly where I was going. I'm glad you said that because split don't get swept split sweep. Fine continuing to play better on the road because that was such a big problem for Georgia state last year, you know, and it became such a, this weird thing because they would come home and even if they would lose, they would at least play well, you know, and then you, you, as we talked about earlier, some of those late game things would happen and they would end up losing, but there were so many games where they would go on the road and it would be like, they were a completely different team and they would just get completely shot out of the gym play these two conference road games well, play them close, win one of them at least, and one, your two-thirds to your conference wins for last year, which is great. But two, I really think that, like you said with Feltz, like that confidence just, it means so much to some guys because if you're if you're a team like Georgia State in the quote-unquote middle class, sometimes you just need to see yourself win a few games and your whole season complexity can change, you know, pending players are healthy. So finding a way to at least win one of these games, I think would be very, very important for the Panthers. And it's like entirely too early to care about tiebreakers. And we wouldn't even know what realm any of these teams are going to be in, but this is the only time you will play Southern Miss or South Alabama. And so if you get to a situation where there's a tie in the standings come tournament time, Winning or losing this game could drop you a seed line or two or three or four, depending on how big the tie is. And so this is your one shot against these two teams because the West, that's how it works. And so this is could be a significant game to look back on in a couple of months when we're looking at where Jordan State is going to end up playing their first round games in Pensacola. But we will leave it there for now. Two games to look forward to for the men and for the women 
Next week, we'll have a little bit more clarity on the football roster situation as that window for enrolling will have passed. And so we'll bring you the latest on that. And we'll also have our helpful steward, our guide, our chariot on the river sticks, Jordan, back recording, back hosting the podcast. In the meantime, thank you for listening to this week's Thursday Night Podcast and see you next time.